0: Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey.
1: Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Hope you're doing well this morning. We are here today with Martina Reeves, author of I'm Still Here, published this week by She Writes Press. Congratulations and welcome, Martina.
2: Thank you so much. It's been a big week and this is a highlight to end the week
1: I'm I'm glad that you're with us, and I'm glad you could make time to be with us. Um, if you hear a lot of little uh, droplets, that's the rain coming down here in St. Petersburg, Florida. You're coming to us live from Berkeley, California. Um, and I am just so impressed with this book, I'm Still Here. Um, you've written in it that um, there's a rainbow out there somewhere. Uh, And I think that's true for how we feel today, that beyond this pain and isolation and deprivation that we see and feel, somewhere out there, we know there's a broader horizon, a future place where the situation resolves itself. And we're gonna need to make some strong statements about our world and its disparities. Uh, And for me, the gift of your book, is learning how to hear your own voice and what we might wanna say when we hear it. Um, and I think that uh, by reading the book, people will also be able to understand how to hear their own voices. It's, it's quite an accomplishment. I'm gonna read your summary um, so that listeners are able to know your your bio because unusually, I think this is a great emerging, Your bio and your story are really one and the same, which is a a great uh, commentary on how authentically you wrote this. I'll just summarize. In 1969, when she was 20, Martina discovered San Francisco. She lived in a commune, married her streetcar driver, and moved in with her husband or moved with her husband to Mendocino County, Ashland, Oregon, and the Virgin Islands, quite a sweep there. In 1980, Martina came out and found her life partner, Tanya. Their son Cooper conceived by artificial insemination was born in 1986 during the early wave of lesbians having children. When Cooper was 19, the family looked up Cooper's donor father and enfolded him and his wife into their family. Meanwhile, in 2008, Martina was diagnosed with tongue cancer. The memoir braids her cancer odyssey and her life story in a chronicle of hope, fear, family, friendship, perseverance, and living with a terminal disease. Thankfully, it wasn't. Failing to die is one of Martina's favorite accomplishments. Congratulations, Martina. (laughs) It's just so lovely. I know that it's not your only accomplishment. However, you're a very accomplished. (laughs) And you've got this well, thank book. You. You've got your book to show for it. What are some of the other things you're proud of personally, professionally?
2: Well, I graduated from law school and became a family lawyer and fairly quickly realized that I felt terrible being in the middle of adversarial fights between people who used to love each other. So in 1986, after my son was born, I limited my practice to mediation, which meant to me living, uh, working with two people together in the same room in a gentle, if possible, way to do their divorce. Um, And at that time, there weren't very many mediators. In the world, and a lot of lawyers thought I was committing malpractice, but it felt just right to me, and I'm proud that I built a practice and had a really good career doing mediation.
1: Right, um, and I mean,
2: I'm I proud think of this book.
1: You, you <laughs> have course. to be proud of this book. This book, this book has so much clarity. It's absolutely. Um, it's a stunning revelation, the whole, the whole of it. Um, and I think that what you're talking about with the media becoming a mediator, um, and and clearly it overlapped into this this lovely family that you've created with Tanya and Cooper. Um, but in the mediation, there's an integration. I think that you write, I learned that I could be myself as a mediator, that I could use the aspects of myself that I liked. Empathy, connection, problem solving—I no longer had to be a gladi- gladiator. So you put down the warrior role, and I think that this is something um, you know. You talk about letting go of the adversarial. There was there's enough to fight in in life as it happens, and um, you you put down your sword at a certain point. That I think um, it's very reflective of your way of. Um, looking at the world in a very integrated sense. Um, You were worried about um, being uh, a mediator and you were always concerned that being a lesbian would make you lose clients. I wonder if you you had that experience or whether they embraced the, the role that you played.
2: Well, when I was a family lawyer... Uh, I worried a lot about being a lesbian, but I was in practice with a woman who was highly established. Mm-hmm. And I I slid in under her good work mm-hmm. and her good mentoring. Right. So it wasn't so apparent to me uh that being a lesbian was a problem as a lawyer, but I did worry when I got pregnant. Yes. That people would not embrace that. And I would say a lot of people didn't.
1: Yeah, she she didn't either. Your business partner, right? She balked and sort of thought somehow you were supposed to be the um, very prosperous lesbian couple that, you know, didn't have children in order to continue to prosper and be professionals and you know, it, it was her um, agenda. So um, we get that. But uh, clearly, um, I think that, you know, by listening to yourself, um, not, you know, you're so candid in the book. You talk about all the parallel tracks, the worries that you have in your mind compared to what you really would like to be doing. It's, it's that, I think, that braiding um, is such, um, it's so helpful to all of us to hear what your inner soundtrack was. Um, And I I think that uh, another thing that's quite astounding about the book is that now that we're in the midst of COVID-19, I found a lot of parallels. I'm sure everyone does, but I'd like to, um, for just today, treat um, COVID like COVID-19 like you did your cancer and that is not to feed it too much energy. Um, The healing man says to you the way to eliminate cancer is not to fight it and not to focus on it but focus on living. Imagine yourself in 2021 healthy and vibrant. Don't spend all your time talking to people about the cancer and I feel like we can all use these words. It, It also has to do with this dynamic that you're talking about about stopping being the warrior the adversarial um, and I think that you know the the amazing thing about it is that when we um, do succeed in these um, challenges what you end up with is an absence an absence of of sickness and the fact that you're with us is is extraordinary because I, I think I'm quoting it successfully you're part of of survivors um, of the particular- Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Okay, we are are talking here to a true, true survivor. Um, You have the tongue surgery. We'll we'll talk about it just a a bit, but also what's important from it. Um, You have the tongue surgery on Valentine's Day in 2008- You and Tanya are writing notes to one another in the house following your surgery as you're not able to speak. Um, You've been been patronized by the medical community and told to relax. um, And that's something that doesn't come to you naturally. Uh, In in I'm Still Here, you write, uh, but as I live these two weeks without the spoken word, I realize that talking is highly overrated. There are far too many words that just fill space unnecessary, unimportant words that don't pierce the heart of things. I, I just want to say thank you for that. And, and you have continued to kind of strip down the layers, right, in, in really understanding yourself. Do you feel as though you've understood yourself better even through the writing of the book?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um. I started writing just stories about my life in the beginning, but when I was diagnosed with the cancer, I wrote the cancer stories along with my life stories. And of course, when you think you might die, it is a time for reflection. So between the memoir and Facing Death, um, I took a pretty deep dive into... What my life meant. And I think that the parallels of drawing to COVID-19 are really interesting. My son did that too. Not too many people have drawn the parallels, but, you know, I, I hibernated a lot when I had cancer. I stayed home because my immune system was so weak that I couldn't afford to get sick. And there were times when I would stay home all the time and not have company and get my exercise at 8 o'clock at night when everybody had gotten off the street by walking Mm -hmm. around the neighborhood. So it's not so different (laughs) in some ways than hibernating with cancer for me. There's that aspect. You know, I know what to do. I have my happy places in my house and... I can sit on my back deck, and I'm lucky. I live by a creek that has lots of trees,
1: Mm.
2: and it's, um, you know, there's a lot of nature and birds and flowers, and I'm lucky that way. So I can be home and still feel part of the world.
1: Uh, that's lovely. Um, and I think as writers, we are used to a certain degree of isolation. So there's also that layer of it. I looked at your photograph. Of course, I wanted to see Cooper's little cottage in the back, but <laughs> because you were photographed on your deck on, on pub day with your book in hand looking just, just you know, serene and, and stunning and beautiful. But I'm, I'm like looking through the, the because it, Cooper lived in your in your backyard. I'm going to also keep the analogy going because I also think the thread of um, COVID has given us the glimpse of, you know, it's the great equalizer. We are all subject to this. It is not a denominational, and we it, it has created the possibility of a life sentence for for us. And collectively, I think you you did an enormously deep dive, and it really shows in this writing. Um, I think we're all kind of ruminating in that way of sorting out this from that, what means something, what doesn't. And I think you, you go into this. Um, here's another part of this excerpt after the tongue surgery. One morning, I have a thought as I awaken, I've been Biting my tongue so long, it finally bit back. My mind floats to life-size ceramic sculpture I once made of a woman's face with her hand resting across her mouth, cutting off her voice. And to another wooden sculpture I carved with an inscription, take seriously my own voice. Lying in bed, I contemplate what it would mean not to bite my tongue, to speak my mind. Despite everything, legal training, assertiveness training, feminism, therapy. I'm still hardwired to be nice. And I, you know, this is just to me, this is this is brilliant. It is resonant. It is applicable to everyone. You know, have we just been too nice um, in dealing with a lot of the disparities around us? If nice is peacekeeping and honesty is peacemaking, then maybe we need to get into some more, some more honesty, and um, that's that's your journey, right? Going towards it seems to me. Or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me this, that's your journey.
2: Well, I am trying to be authentic, and part of coming to terms with my voice actually was also recognizing that. I don't get to just blurt out whatever's true for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think some people would hear me say that I was hardwired to be nice and they'd start laughing Mm -hmm. because I wasn't really known (laughs) to be a nice girl. Um, But the truth is I was pretty uh, motivated by what other people thought and what other people were feeling, and um, oftentimes bit my tongue. Sure. So I, I started speaking my voice, but then I had to learn how to be skillful at it and more gentle right. than it came out naturally.
1: <laughs> right. Well, when it first. But that's comes- part of the journey that is part of the journey and when it first comes out it it, it, these are thoughts you know they've been in there for a long time it's it's like david white says by the time you speak they're they're very old thoughts and you Mm -hmm. to to be able to articulate them in the world means putting them in balance with other ears and calibrating but in a different way and i think that you also are you You're also in pursuit of calm in this book, in in your story and in your journey, because you are um, eliminating the frayed edges of these conflict conflict situations. You're aiming at a more zen-like place. And let's face it, as a woman growing up, your mother was quite um, euphemistic. Everything was perfect and wonderful all the time. Women are not taught how to handle their anger or their dark thoughts or their shadow sides and so we're afraid of them we're just afraid Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: I think that's true
1: yeah um, you, you there was a lot no
2: of vocabulary in my family for talking about feelings uh-huh. and I certainly had feelings and I would express them pretty inartfully a lot of the time because, well, you're not in
1: artful now, that's for sure. Well, I'm getting, I'm definitely gotten better. <laughs> Thank you.
2: But it wasn't, I
1: it, think didn't, the, it, it didn't come naturally, that's for sure. It wasn't encouraged. No,
2: it didn't. It, it came out as rage a lot when I was a kid. It was mm-hmm. so difficult not to be seen that I thought the only way you could get seen was to just, take up some space. And I think all that commotion I made just made things worse for
1: me and my family.
2: Right. Although and, now I have a wonderful relationship with both my brothers.
1: Which is super cool, right? I think, I think too, yeah. now you were talking about um, rage. I mean, you know, who who cannot identify with this? The, and, and the idea of making a larger footprint, because we had none or felt invisible. When we come back, we're going to take a short break in a a few seconds here. But Martina, you're going to have to tell the story of how you had the sword when you were fighting with your ex with the foam sword. And... right no you are going to have to tell us that story okay so because that's all all about this Uh, we're going to take a we're going to take a short break here Martina Martina Reeves author of I'm Still Here a triumph in itself but the book is as well don't go away we'll be right back
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com That's the letter D. Dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Martina Reeves, who has written a memoir that was published just this week by She Writes Press called I'm Still Here. It is a very um, exquisite journey toward authenticity and truth through many challenges Um, right now we're talking about letting go of uh, aggression, conflict, how that doesn't come easily, and how even expression of honest uh, conflict doesn't come easily. Um, Martina, you were just about to um, talk to us about this very fun, funny, I I think it was one of the first revelations that you had, right? You're You're now, you're at the therapist's office um, with your ex, um, but you're still married. You're trying to work things out. They're trying to reduce all the the hard edges here. And the therapist apparently perceives what's really going on and suggests that you two pick up foam swords, you know, instruments that, you know, you're going to, you're going to duke it out with. And what happens then?
2: Well, it's, it's so much like a Woody Allen view of California, it's kind of humorous. <laughs> so she asked us to pick up these swords. She wanted to see how we fought. So I was you know, five, six, my ex husband was six, four, and we picked up these swords, and I just go after him. I'm pounding him with this sword and stabbing him with it. Of course, it doesn't do any damage because it's just foam. And my perception of him is that he's sort of standing up there, protecting his private parts and doing absolutely nothing. Um, He looks like a wimp to me. And she says, stop. And we sit back down in our chairs. And she says, so what do you think went on?" And I decide to let him speak because he always let me do the emotional work and I just sat there and he didn't say anything and he didn't say anything and I said, well, I think I was really fighting with him and he was just standing there protecting himself, not doing much. And the therapist leaned forward and put her head about five inches from mine And she said, you want to know what I saw? I said, yes. I was totally terrified. She said, you were absolutely ineffective and flailing. And he had control the whole time.
1: And then she
2: turned to him and pummeled him with questions for about... Forty-five minutes until the session was over. Right, and all this stuff came out about his control and his expectation that I would act like a dutiful daughter and all that. Well, and it only took I, that one session.
1: Well, it's a beautiful thing, right? That you know, to how we fight is is who we are. This is this at that moment in time because you evolved from that point, I think a big light bulb went on in your head about engagement um, and in engaging a person who is controlling. He certainly showed his true colors as being uh, a person in control uh, and a dominant force when he then proceeded to later out you to your own mother, um, which I really almost had to put the, Book down and say wait a minute this guy was out of control <laughs> that was just that was too that was a bridge too far but you you saw him and by this time you could see i think in your mind's eye now there's starting to be an inner dialogue um that's maybe separate from the words coming out of your mouth but you're starting to see him for who he is you're starting to get an inkling of yourself now because you, you also are, um, you're working and you're acquainted with Diane. And Diane is a coworker um, and you you have started to have some kind of a vicarious feeling or a longing you describe it as, which occurs over time in a very organic way. Um, and I think the reader will start to just feel this as an incredibly natural kind of evolution. And, Diane, um, I, I, I don't want to give spoiler alerts, but she does eventually, um, she does dis- disappear from your life. Um, and I think that it's, it's incredibly, um, you know, it's significant, it's symbolic, that also you have written a, a braided memoir. This memoir is an extremely, um, it's a complicated book um, structure, but its so emblematic of the way your mind was working and the way different strands of thought were coming together when you finally realized and acknowledged to yourself um and did it occur around the time of Diane departing um that you were attracted to women i mean this is this was must have been very revelatory for you
2: oh, it was a shock. <laughs> I was just clueless. Um, I knew I had all these feelings, but I didn't have a word for them. Um, And it wasn't until my husband said, I think you're in love with her, that I actually realized that that is what was going on. I mean, there was nothing sexual about it, but I had a heart connection with her and a, a way of being with her that was so joyful and wonderful and connected. And then she moved away. Uh, That was sort of the beginning of my awareness that I was definitely attracted to women. But I learned very quickly that I'm also very monogamous. And I loved my husband at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I just thought, well, if I weren't with him, I would be with women. And that's how I kind of put that to rest for a few more years.
1: Because you were still with him at that time.
2: Yes, I was still with him. But at one point we decided we would try an open marriage, which lasted about a month and was horrific for me. Um, I had a brief relationship with Tanya, whom I eventually later got together with, but I could not be intimately connected to two people at the same time. It was wrenching. Mm-hmm. So when Tanya left, um, that brief affair, my husband and I said, okay, this This is not, we're not exactly Vita Sackville-West and Nigel Nicholson who had a long marriage (laughs) in which they both had lovers. Right, they juggled. Um, I couldn't do it. Yeah, Mm.
1: I get that. Um, It's again a time when you wanted to um, somehow integrate, you know, you, you couldn't split yourself off, you couldn't be two people at once, and the you know the 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 relationship the rapport that you had with Diane it had to have such a different feeling. it had to reside in you in such a different place than where you were with your husband, so there was that contrast. then there was the affair with Tanya, which practically split you apart for the schizophrenia and intimacy for you belongs to one. And I think that you know there there are other those are huge life lessons right there. Um, I know it's painful to go through it, but you really you really went through like a kind of a crucible um, for yourself. And I I wondered now you know that you're back to living this. You're living. You you did reconnect with Tanya, um, and Tanya is um, you know for once you You're an author who really describes people well we I really feel as though I know, but for better, you know it maybe I do or maybe I don't, but I think I do um you just you describe Tanya so well, she's a doer she's um she's kind of enthusiastic, you're kind of worrier you've got the 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 second voice always coming in. And, um, you know, she's proceeding. You've got the rat infestation in the house when you do move in together. And I mean, she's setting the traps and you're, you know, fretting about it. And it to me, it's really, you become almost like <laughs> one, one human being if you melded the two of you together. It's, it's really just, it's, it's such a fantastic dynamic um but i I really i really do think um okay so you you do meet tanya and you have met tanya through work um and you're you're working for a guy jerry he's into est the air seminars training um and, and this promotes the idea that we create our own destiny now partially this is true but not in a society where nearly where everyone doesn't have the same equal playing field, right? I mean, there are systemic problems. Absolutely. Uh, so you, this is another revelation. You're, you're realizing this with, together with Tanya. Is that part of the dialogue you were having together?
2: Well, part of our connection in, in the beginning was that both of us could not stand S. Right. And everybody else in the office had gone to Est. And this idea that, well, they even got to the point where they could end world hunger simply by visualizing it. Oh, dear. Now, I'm the kind of person who thinks you end world hunger by redistributing things and you go to food banks and you do all kinds of things to end world hunger. But Estu just thought about it and visualized it, and they believed they were going to end world hunger that way. And it was um, really hard to work around for us. So we'd sneak off from the office. This is well before we even had an inkling that we would be together. We were just really good friends. And we'd go down the street and get cappuccinos and just get away from them.
1: Right you had to um, but i mean it's it, it's also something that happens unfortunately with cancer survivors there's some sort of implication i think you you broached this um, there's you know well what were you what 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 were you thinking about or you know that there's some self-fulfilling prophecy it's kind of related to this est crap where you know you've you've created this destiny mentally right you you you've had that experience and you had to peel away from people who were making this kind of noise um and it, it, and you also get to the point where you're with Tanya and you've actually um, gone to therapy and i think this is also really really healthy understanding um you know how your dynamic works and there's here's what the therapist says and you're you're coping about you're coping with your worrier nature and you're also coping with your your cancer diagnosis and the therapist says there's only no there there's no future only now um, and the therapist says to tanya and you that's how i cope and it works sometimes And you think about this for a moment. You write, until now, I haven't detected any Buddhist leanings. This is new. If there's just now, I say, it's much harder to worry. And every time I begin to worry, I take a breath and notice what's around me, and I'm calm, at least for the moment. So I practice living in limbo, not knowing what's next, living day by day, moment by moment, looking for joy wherever I can find it. I suddenly remember a book about cancer that I was interviewed for in 1994, dancing in limbo, making sense of life after cancer. But this limbo dance is really the only dance there is. And I just have to say, how resonant is that for today? We are in limbo again.
2: Actually, that's, I think, totally true. I think we don't have a clue how long this will last. I will probably be um, hibernating much longer than uh, our president thinks I should for sure. <laughs> um, because, you know, my immune system is
1: questionable.
2: And,. I'm going to be very careful.
1: So it sure. is. You just do one day at a time. Absolutely. And you, that's all we've you got. You don't plan
2: vacations. You don't, uh, you don't imagine what you're doing next year. You just appreciate what you have in front of you that day.
1: Right? I mean, that realization, it's really worth something. And it's completely resonant. I think that now it's put it all in complete perspective that that really, we only have this moment. And clearly you do have to protect yourself. And how do we take care of ourselves? Um, There's a lot of centering in this book. There's a lot of coming to ground in this book. And I know that you didn't write it as a a, a self-help, but in a way that we listen to you going through your experience and we are the better for it. Um, I think that, that you also get to the point where you and Tanya, you've now decided that you will um, get pregnant through artificial insemination, and you've got um, Cooper on the way. And I feel as though there's this immense kind of cathartic release with Cooper, because part of one of the, one of the chapters, you know, about him is called, Nothing Can Steal Your Joy. And that in and of itself, um, there's lots of people, kind of um, suction um, energies out there that do want to steal joy and, um, you know, focusing on what, you know, was happening to you with this, um, this child growing inside of you. And we want to hear um, about Cooper and his, his journey. You also wrote a little bit about his journey in this book. Um, and when we come back, we've got uh, another break coming up. They're so irritating sometimes when you're deep in conversation. But we want to hear about Cooper, how some of the things that he experienced mirrored or were very different in some ways than your journey with Tanya. But in the end, um, he provided another kind of voice for you, a voice of talking with um, the public, About yourselves, that you became, you outed yourself with Cooper on the stage, and you talked about yourself as a family. Um, And this is also fascinating. So we look forward to coming back with Martina Reeves, author of I'm Still Here. You can find her at her website, martinareeves.com. And Martina, you're going to tease us too with your new blog, Ebb and Flow, which I see snippets of. On your website. Totally exciting. So you'll have to give us clues on that when we come back, okay? Okay. Great. Don't go away. We'll be back with Martina Reeds. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa. Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn.
0: Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out. Finding the inner story and what you want to say. Developing your message. the Revelations that become your reader's takeaways. Helping to rally the motivation to finish your project. And what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey. Author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D, media.com, or on her author's page, Dewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com That's the letter D Dewey at nordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In
1: Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Martina Reeves having an intimate and enjoyable conversation. We've gotten to the um, next threshold, which is the um, conception of uh, Tanya and Martina's son, uh, Cooper, by means of artificial insemination, and you, you really, um, you make a kind of pact with one another. Describe your agreement with the idea of, of the, the sperm donor and his role in your life. How did you set it up for yourselves?
2: Well, we thought a lot about it uh, because the law was in flux at that time. And, of course, I did family law, and I saw all the things that could go wrong. We thought about whether we wanted a donor we knew, and for a variety of reasons, we decided not to do that, Um, partly because AIDS was just beginning to be a serious problem, and partly because the men we knew who weren't gay had girlfriends who were not keen on them being donors, Mm -hmm. which I think was smart, actually, in hindsight. Mm -hmm. So we eventually decided to have an anonymous donor, but it was important to us that our child be able to look up the donor when he was 18.
1: This, I think, is brilliant.
2: Yeah, I mean, I knew enough about kids not having a missing parent from my work that I felt that that was critical. Yeah. So first we went to just our local sperm bank, which was just a horrifying experience with yeah. all these sweet, young, perky, heterosexual couples and then the two of us in our 30s. And um, it was very unpleasant and they were not kind. Right. The staff was not kind. Then we heard about a woman named Sharon Mills who was uh, starting a lesbian, um, a sperm bank for lesbians in San Francisco. Great. So we went there and it was just like the polar opposite. She was marvelous. Her staff was warm and welcoming. And we picked our top four or three uh, donors based on these long... uh, bios that we had. We knew a lot about them. Mm-hmm. And we took the top three to the secretary and said, okay, <laughs> oh, these yeah. are our top three choices. Who would you choose?
1: It's like the bachelor. She
2: immediately, you know, we knew that the secretaries always know everything. Yes, they do. They know everything and they're so underappreciated. So I knew she met all these men and hung out with them in the waiting room and dealt with them and interviewed them and helped run the office. So she she pointed immediately, She without hesitation. So we reread his bio, and it was just so sweet about just wanting to help people who want to have kids be able to have kids. So we picked him. Right.
1: I mean, I, I think that's so wise that, you know, you talk to the person who's the repository of all the impressions of these people coming in through the office, um, that there was finally a place that was welcoming to lesbian couples. And I mean, we there's a lot of research that's been done um, specifically about parenting by lesbian and gay couples and part of it is what you're describing about yourselves there's so much intentionality that the yeah. <laughs> the quality of parenting is like a whole lot better so i mean the one of the best kept secrets but you know it's true and but you know the thing that I, the other thing i thought that was very interesting about your boundary making was that you know at 18 your child would be able to locate the sperm donor and the oh, but up until that point, it was going to be you and Tanya, you were the parents, and you were going to do the parenting, so you didn't wish to have you know outside interference in that. you guided your own roles very specifically that way, and I think that that was equally brilliant that you know you you allowed this solidification of yourselves as a family, and it worked right cooper he he seems you know utterly charming and you know maybe a little bit like the two of you like also you know very um you know accomplished he wants to get his job right at the water conservancy he's very concerned about um you know being you know perfect and getting it right and um you know you 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 have this completely sweet Um, family and um, you know in the meantime all of this is happening with you we can't forget the the the, the, there's this sturm and drong of the um, the the diagnosis that you've had Um, but you're you endure and you persevere as a family and then you know, I, I think this is. Here's a quote: um, "You finally decide on um, legitimizing yourselves, as you say. The law is, you know, evaporating and materializing in different ways each day, practically. But finally, there's a, a way legally where you can be declared uh, a family. Tanya can become a, a legal parent of Cooper, and you know, you go to the judge and you, you say." Um, no matter how wonderful things are, lurking in the psychological landscape is a tiny sense that you don't truly belong. And I think this sense of belonging is palpable. Um, you, you're, you talk a lot about belonging in the book and ways in which you sought to belong. And just in case any listener out there thinks that this um, story of... Um, you know, artificial insemination, lesbian couples in a time when it was really very much the pioneering thing to do. There's no humor in this with the cancer. There is tons of humor in this book, and you write, um, you go to, um, you go to the camp, right? The camp, the family camp for lesbian and gay families and their friends, and you started going to it in 1990 when Cooper was four years old, so that he'd see other families that looked like yours. It wasn't until Cooper was 13 that he realized what our camp was about. And he said, have you ever noticed that there's a lot of lesbians at this camp? <laughs> <laughs> this is I great. Thought, oh, my
2: God, all those years of sleeping on the, in the tent on the floor and the dust and the heat, and he didn't even know what it
1: was about. That's so kind of great, it's though, right? You know, he's looking at the important stuff. What you did together, what you how you spent your day. I mean, come on, this is this is the important stuff. Um, You you do um, continue to gain your voice, um, and you you and Tanya. I mean, inevitably, um, that Cooper does. Um, grow up, he does get his job and you now are um, faced with your relationship with Tanya and and being with one another again. Um, And you are, um, you know, asking yourself what to do with yourself and you have now started to devote yourself to writing. Um, This is another signal that your voice is continuing to come through. And, you know, would you, you know, would you agree with that and that agree that it's also essential in your personal relationship to not keep stuff to yourself that you found this acceptance of yourself and one another through um, communicating and finding your voice Um, has that been part of the evolution and the dynamic of your relationship
2: well I think one of the things that um, we got from going through this cancer experience uh, was A period of time as I was getting well, we didn't know if it would come back, but we got some really excellent therapy because by then we'd been together like over 30 years, and we had developed a few little habits that were not useful, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and we had this great therapist who worked with us, and we kind of unjoined ourselves from being joined at the hip, which we had been all the way through the cancer thing. I mean, Tanya just was by my side the whole time, and in many ways had to be, and we had to then step back from each other and say, we're two separate people, we do different things, and incorporate our own interests into our own lives. And I think that we're happy, We're happier now than we've ever been the whole time we've been together. I mean, we've been pretty happy together most of the time we've been together. But right now, we're really content. It's so um, and I think it's because we recognize how different we are from each other. And it's okay. You know, you go dance and get wild and crazy and all right.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So we each have something we're
2: passionate about.
1: Yes. And that was critical all along the way, but then to recognize it again, you don't have to be, you know, in unison. I think that's huge, um, you know, recognition. For all of us, and I know everyone's wondering. So let's plunge ahead with the minutes that we have left here. Cooper did meet his biological father, Stephen, um, and yeah, the secretary was right. And um, you, you feel as though he was—he—he he was so full of all the qualities that you um, sought after, and you were, t- but you were twice quite taken aback at the mental, physical, and emotional similarities to Cooper. Um, and, you know, maybe this is a, an offshoot of behaviorism, but I think there was you express very candidly your, your kind of shock that like there was a lot of, um, you know, genetic unspooling that had been going on. Cooper had some learning uh, disability issues. So did his father. Um, there was a DNA strand. Um, but you write. But what I will remember is how connected I feel to Stephen, the biological father, as if he'd been part of the family all along. Our intention to have our family be Tanya, me, and Cooper was already a thing of the past. So you you have this coming together, this connection beyond predefinitions, intentions, or roles. And Cooper, you say, is more grounded and calmer than ever. So, in a way, you. You all came full circle, right?
2: Oh, yeah. Meeting Stephen and his wife, who is one of the brightest lights in the universe. She is so loving. Uh, it was a revelation and one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. It, it's like my heart was bursting. I, it's so There are no words for it. You know, they're all trite. Um, when I saw them standing next to each other the first time, I couldn't believe it. They looked alike. And when they talked, they talked alike. And I had this, you know, obvious revelation that genetics are more, imp- well, at least as important as, you know, the way you're raised and who you're raised by.
1: Right. It was and astounding It is astounding and it resonates um, very much so with me as well. You write about um, imagining yourself when you were uh, afflicted with cancer. I imagine rising from the chair and walking forward to the vision I have of myself in 2021. I merge with her and light emanates from me. Is it wishful thinking or thoughtful wishing? I'd really like to end our conversation, Martina, on that because we need to have these kinds of visualizations. I hope that everyone visualizes ourselves post-pandemic and starts to really focus on both our, what's right in front of us and what can be. Thank you so much for Martina Reeves. It's been a complete joy. Follow her on Facebook, Instagram, Lucky Martina, and her blogs from her expert excerpts from her new book, and Flow, or on martinareeves.com. The book is I'm Still Here. Thank you, Martina.
2: Thank you so much. I've loved talking to you.
1: Be well, everyone.
0: Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.